You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is the seventh in a series of lectures entitled, The Logic of Religion. This particular lecture will deal with Immanuel Kant, his philosophy of religion. Before turning directly to Kant, I want to suggest his indebtedness to David Hume. In a previous lecture, we explored the philosophy of religion of Hume. Hume is perhaps the first professional philosopher to systematically examine religion at length. Gant follows in his footsteps. There are others who follow after both of them. But first, a word or two about Hume. His critique of religion amounted to this, that there is no evidence for the existence of God. That is, God's existence cannot be demonstrated. He doesn't place much credence in what we have called revealed religion, but he recognizes that the race, wherever it has been found, wherever its outlooks, attitudes have been recorded, suggests that mankind as a whole has in fact been religious. Hume concludes that a man formed by his philosophy of nature, and he regards religion as inescapable factor of human nature. And at the end of his analysis, he concludes that if one analyzes religion as he has done so, one can't remain either what he calls an untroubled dogmatist or an untroubled skeptic. Hume gives a cautious, highly qualified assent to the religious reference of human life. In his words, belief is generated by man's passionate search for happiness and his anxious scrutiny of the aspects of design in nature. A philosophical examination of religion frees one from both popular belief and skepticism. The mind which reflects on the nature of religious belief will emerge with a transformed view of theism and religion. The person who has subjected religion to this critique cannot remain satisfied with popular forms of religion. And what does Hume understand by popular forms of religion? Well, what he calls religious monotheism, that is the God of the scriptures, that is of the Bible. It's derivative theology, one can't be satisfied with that either. And one can't be satisfied with an uncritical philosophical theism such that we might find in uh, Roman sources or even in the scholastics. Well, where does one end up? After a critique of religion, what is left if you're rejecting monotheism, theology, and Hume's focus is really on Christianity. So if you're rejecting Christianity, if you're rejecting Christian theology, and if you're rejecting 
the outlooks of philosophers who worked within a Christian perspective, what is left? Well, he thinks what is left is a genuine theism in which one gives probable speculative assent to God, and in this consists true religion. Religion on Hume's terms is confined to the act of giving a probable speculative assent to a cosmic mind. It has no practical consequences. As with Seneca, to know God is to worship him. All other worship is indeed superstitious, absurd, impious. A philosophical reformed religion is viable, it must be said, only for a few reflective minds. Now, what does this mean concretely? It means that with some philosophical expertise, with the critical mind that Hume assumes one will possess if one subscribes to his philosophy, when one takes to thought, as it were, about things divine, that's religion, and that's all it is. It doesn't manifest itself in temples and churches. It doesn't manifest itself in uh, a propensity to create welfare institutions of one sort or another, to follow the biblical mandate of caring for widows and orphans, etc. Philosophical assent occurs only when the mind is actually inquiring, when it's actually focused on the divine. Religion is definitely not a habitual principle of thought and action. We've seen from our examination of religion, attitudes toward it over the centuries, that religion is commonly regarded as a species of the virtue of justice. It's an act of piety, an act of homage toward the sources of our being. We acknowledge dependence upon God and we worship. Hume will have none of that. Well, where does that leave him? He realizes that this account will not satisfy the ordinary believer. And it may not even satisfy philosophers whom he knows or has read. He's satisfied with the propensity toward religious belief. He recognizes that this propensity, if not held by a critical mind, nevertheless is common to the race. It leads to these mighty passions. Again, its basis is mainly in fear and hope and curiosity. These passions also lead to action. But whereas the critical philosopher shares some of this with the rest of mankind, he puts it aside and recognizes that the highest act that one can perform religiously is to, as it were, enter one study for a period of meditation or contemplation. That's religion for Hume. Well, the story doesn't end with Hume. We turn to Immanuel Kant. There's an old saying that people don't write original books. Books beget books. And this is certainly the case with Hume and Kant. Kant says of Hume that his critique of knowledge, his repudiation of metaphysics, awoke him from a dogmatic slumber. And we'll see what happens.
I said people don't write original books, books beget books. The emphasis there on books beget books. Immanuel Kant is certainly a major thinker, an original thinker, although a critical one in the history of Western thought. As a matter of fact, right from the library behind me, I can pull down a work. This is an encyclopedia. The title is the Standard American Encyclopedia. This dates from 1940. Not everything in this studio is as up to date as the audio and visual equipment. And in this 1940 volume, under the entry Immanuel Kant, we have probably the greatest and most influential of German philosophers. And then it goes on, born in Königsberg, Prussia, 1724. Kant states, as you can see, 1724 to 1804. A word or two about his background. Kant enjoyed a pietist upbringing, but he withdrew his assent very early from a personal theism. In agreement with Jean-Jacques Rousseau on the need for a foundation of religion, he develops a theory that focuses on the moral personality and consequently focuses upon the personal act of belief and its practical fruit. Kant read Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion in 1780. His famous work, The Critique of Pure Reason, denies that we have any speculative knowledge of the existence of God. With Hume, he's affirming the same outlook. This prepares a way for a transition from the speculative to the practical foundation of a theory of God. Kant elucidates his thoughts on religion within a multiplicity of sources. One of the primary texts is religion within the limits of reason alone. Another text is a work that in English translation we call it the end of all things. Another, the metaphysics of morals. And another, the strife of faculties. These works were written in the latter part of the 18th century. But to begin with Kant's theory of religion is to look at the task which he holds out for philosophy in general. A person's theory of religion is determined by his conception of the nature, aim, and method of philosophy. For Kant, the task of philosophy is therapeutic. Philosophy's obligation is to criticize and reform. The three main questions which he addresses are these, what can I know? The answer to that is provided by the Critique of Pure Reason, a work that was published in 1781. A second question, what ought I do? And the answer is provided in the Critique of Practical Reason. And then, what may I hope for? And that's provided in the Critique of Judgment. These critiques are the background against which Kant provides 
an analysis of religion and the principal source, as I mentioned, comes with religion within the limits of reason alone. These are late 19th century works, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, 1793. The notion that it's the function of philosophy to provide a critique is a relatively modern one. For the scholastic, that is, the medieval commentators on the classical teachings of Greece and Rome, philosophy is regarded as a science with conclusions that can be passed from one generation to another. You don't start all over again, like in the sciences, there is a body of knowledge which it behooves another generation to know something about. You don't begin your study of physics as if the whole of physics had to be repudiated and you had to discover everything on your own that had been discovered in times past. That was the scholastic notion of philosophy as a science with conclusions just as certain as in any natural science, conclusions that can be passed along with absolute confidence, with the notion that it's incumbent upon the student to master that and then to go further. The scholastic notion of science, like natural science, is open-ended. There are things you know, but you can always gain new insights, but you build on what is received. In the modern period, and modernity in philosophy is usually dated to Rene Descartes, 1595 to 1650, or his dates. And with Descartes, with Hume, with Kant and with some contemporary American philosophers, not to mention continental philosophers, we have a spirit that the function of reason or intelligence is to challenge the inherited rather than pass it along. There's a big difference between the two outlooks. I mean, if you think that your obligation is to challenge everything that's been received, you can quickly move into a kind of skeptical period. It requires a different kind of mind to look at what has been received and to pick out what is valuable and what ought to be perpetuated. I mean, you can see what those two attitudes might do to a school curriculum. What I'm suggesting is that in philosophy, one ought to, as we find in the tradition up until the critical period, one ought to appropriate and pass on that which is valuable. Of course, philosophy is both speculative and practical, speculative in the sense that it provides a general framework in which we locate ourselves, and practical in the sense that it does, in fact, provide us with some attitude or outlook with respect to what we ought to be doing. But the point I'm making is critical philosophy is quite different than, let's say, an appreciation of antiquity. You don't read the great books with the same mindset if you start with a critical attitude. As a matter of fact, you don't even pick them up at all. 20th century philosophy starts with the 20th century, ignoring much of the inherited. A believing philosopher, says Kant, Kant is certainly within a Christian tradition, pietist in upbringing, we said. A Christian philosopher, a believing philosopher, can engage in radical criticism 
of speculative demonstration without undermining his religious conviction. One must believe even if one can't demonstrate. If one can't say it is morally certain that there is a God, I can say that I am morally certain that there is a God. Now there's a big difference between the two. Kant immediately distinguishes, as we've seen many of our sources do, he distinguishes between revealed religion and the natural religion of reason. Kant admits of no argument for the existence of God. His most famous classification of the arguments for the existence of God and his refutation of them is well known. He considers what he regards as classical arguments for the existence of God, criticizes each one, those arguments, or the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, and something he calls the physical-theological argument. A critical philosophy must make a negative assessment of all speculative proofs for the existence of God. The object of Kant's criticism, in his criticism of these three speculative proofs, is not to abandon the entire body of speculative thought about God, but to suggest that the rational foundation for holding to God's existence simply hasn't been demonstrated. And he says even if the arguments did succeed, they would lead to a view of God inconsistent with theistic realism. Sometimes we hear it said, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the God of the philosophers. Kant is, in effect, saying that himself. God would necessarily be conceived after the manner of a phenomenological object of law, which conception is at variance with traditional religious belief. While the arguments for the existence of God can never have demonstrative force, they can nevertheless have a kind of indicative role. Such argument functions to keep our minds alive to the importance of existential questions about God. God has a moral meaning. If we begin to think that there is a God and that there is life eternal, that has consequences for morality. We never approach the question of God's existence, he says, in a purely detached manner. All questions about the existence of God have a practical effect. Remember that famous line of Dostoevsky, if God is dead, all is permitted. Kant is saying almost something like that. Hence, all the components in our speculative idea of God can be integrated in principle with the moral meaning of God. So while we can't demonstrate the existence of God, while natural reason cannot reach God, we must admit that the notion of God has consequences in the moral order. Like Hume, Kant looks at the genesis of religious belief. If reason cannot demonstrate the existence of God, how is it that we nevertheless have this belief? Kant believes that several cognitive faculties must be brought into play to generate belief. And the cognitive basis of assent is founded in what he identifies as the ways of imagination. 
we'll develop that. And then the ways of reason. The ways of imagination include intuitive vision, way of reason is speculative proof. Imagining, he says, leads to idolatrous superstition. If we place our bets on intuition, we end up with a kind of enthusiastic fanaticism. Speculative proof leads to metaphysical theologism. Moral belief leads to moral theism. And Kant sees a historical progression from the ways of imagination to the ways of reason. But even before men engage in formal theological speculations, their practical moral impulse enables them to make a preliminary passage from polytheism to moral monotheism. In its initial condition, moral theism is quite weak and vulnerable. Men have tried to shore it up by placing it on a speculative footing. They've treated religion as though it were a practical consequence from metaphysical reasoning. Yet metaphysical theism has never been able to sustain its own claims, so its long-range influence has been more unsettling than stabilizing. As a result of intellectual controversies, religious believers tend, again, to subordinate the way of reason to that of imagination. The descent from speculative proof to visionary enthusiasm in religious matters is swift. It often goes undetected. When people do recognize this fluctuation between pretended speculative proof and pretended spiritual vision, their adherence to God is fundamentally shaken. Skepticism in religious questions, then, is a protected response. To overcome fanaticism, one cannot appeal to still further speculative demonstrations. Indeed, Kant recommends that the distinctive resource of moral belief be freed from theology and integrated instead with a critique of knowledge and a reflective understanding of human history and cultural growth. He's making a distinction between the pre-critical and the modern critical historical condition of moral theism. A critical historical approach, using his terminology, shows that the demand to gain speculative demonstrations about God is unwarranted and oversteps the limits of human reason. Once this demand has been systematically removed, the human mind is relieved of the pressure to overcompensate by means of an intuitive vision of spiritual reality. In effect, he's saying, so what if metaphysics fails? So what if we do not have natural knowledge of God? We can still hold on to our religious commitment. Now, that's going to be described in the language of moral theism. Kant wishes to escape what Hume had described as an alternating cycle of monotheism and polytheism, and he thinks his own philosophy of moral theism escapes from a religious cyclic reflux in the degree that our moral belief in God becomes critically reflective and historically aware of its foundations in human nature. This puts us in possession of a religious monotheism, 
which maintains a personal and morally responsible relation to God and hence uproots polytheism along with superstition and fanaticism. We will now focus on theistic moral belief. To believe is to accept as certain and true and hence to assent uh, to those realities which are implicated in our moral freedom. Kant holds that the act of believing is not a step along a path toward speculative knowledge. Belief is a cognition which stands on its own. It requires a distinctive disposition of the mind operating under a distinctive maxim of reason. He is in this position because he recognizes that the modern person has been thrust into an intellectual world, as it were, on the one hand challenged by a skepticism, on the other by a kind of fanaticism in religious matters. So the modern person alive to the challenges of skepticism and on the other hand, there are those who reject religion altogether, must adopt a distinctive orientation of mind in order to believe. Now, what is required in order to believe? What leads us, as it were, to believe? And he says, this can only come after a deliberative process of reflection and gradual orientation. Again, Kant doesn't believe in natural theology. He doesn't believe there's any natural knowledge about God. What we know about God comes from Revelation, or perhaps from some other sources, something like Hume described. Kant describes four steps in preparation for belief. First, we must make sure that the subject of our search does not fall within the scope of knowledge and opinion. Secondly, we must make sure that it contains no contradiction and survives a test for internal consistency. What is to be believed hasn't been produced by philosophy or theology. What is to be believed contains no contradiction. Third, it has to be coherent with what we know. And then, fourth, we can make a comparison between the limits of human knowing and the drive to increase our knowledge, the drive to increase our cognitive act so that we somehow include the divine reality lying beyond the range of objective knowledge. So belief entails knowing what one has not and recognizing that one wants more. Once we recognize this discrepancy between what we can know and what we seek to cognize in some other fashion, our reason necessarily generates the feeling of cognitive need and for relying on an act of faith. Although reason itself doesn't feel, it brings this feeling of a need before itself. In short, the cognitive mind orients itself toward belief. This need of reason then serves as the grounding principle 
in man's acceptance of God. Belief rests upon a subjective principle of certainty. Belief depends upon a reflective awareness of the need for faith on the part of the active personal subject. If this is a bit reminiscent of Luther and Calvin, there are reasons for it. I think Immanuel Kant is the philosopher of Protestantism in the same way that Thomas Aquinas is the philosopher of Catholicism. Now Kant recognizes that religious believers don't always explicitly go through these four steps, and yet he suggests that there's always some minimal reflection present in moral belief. This minimal reflection yields an informal yet reasonable knowledge of God which can be developed into the attitude of belief. This is not wishful thinking. We don't invent God you know, out of some desire. Rational moral belief is genuine only when assent is determined by some necessary need. It stems from a judgment regarding the structure of man's free moral agency. The task of moral philosophy and its continuation in a theory of religion is to test the claim of specific candidates for moral belief. So we need to know more, but you know, what's, what's the content of that more that we're disposed to accept? Moral belief must be founded in the requirements of moral life. Doctrinal beliefs, theology is derivative. It doesn't enjoy the same direct founding. Doctrinal beliefs is developed by theologians or by ecclesiastical bodies, serve as instrumental to moral belief in God. Theoretical doctrinal beliefs concerning God help in explicating the meaning of moral theism and in preparing for its intellectual analysis and defense. He doesn't rule out the need to theologize, but it's not primary. Speculative theology is thus subordinate to moral belief. But can we affirm the objective reality of God in whom we have moral faith? And Kant's reply comes in three parts. He denies that moral belief affirms anything to be real and objective in the same way in which the objects of science are real and objective. Secondly, something has moral reality and objective insofar as it is a component of human freedom and moral law, or is necessarily related in some way to man's condition as a moral agent. Thus, freedom itself is affirmed to be objectively real. As moral agents under the law, men are free. Since belief in God rests on an inference made from our moral situation and expresses an implication inherent in that situation as shared by all men, this belief also affirms a real and objective truth to the moral order. And third, even though we succeed in keeping God distinct from the object of the laws of nature, 
There is the danger of taking his objective reality to mean that belief in him is an impersonal truth. So these affirmations are affirmations of a reality that is quite different from the reality of the nature that we investigate in the several sciences. We have to make a distinction between the content of belief and the act of believing. The content of belief can be shared by all men, by the race. But each man has to make his own personal act of assent, own personal act of faith. So the act of believing is a free personal response. It's not like a conclusion reached as a result of a demonstration. Believing springs into existence only when an individual makes a personal discovery of the involvement of God in his own moral situation. The key word for the theism that Kant is recommending, his moral theism, the key word is not creed, but cradle. Not an objective set of propositions to which one subscribes, but cradle, I believe. We turn now to his notion of religion and its minimal theology. Can you have religion without some theology? And he's talking about a minimal theology. The minimum that one must subscribe to and be a moral theist is the recognition that all duties are the result of divine command. And he distinguishes again between religion as having an objective content or doctrine and the subjective attitude of mind and heart. Both elements have to be studied, but it's the latter that Kant is primarily interested in. He's not interested in an analysis of doctrines proposed by religious bodies. It's that subjective disposition of mind and heart, if you will. In its subjective or dispositional character, religion actively relates our moral freedom to God. We recognize that God is the source of the moral command which we have an obligation to respect. Kant will repudiate David Hume's distinction between popular and philosophical religion. We come back, though, to the question, how much knowledge of God is required in order that there be that religious referring? What do we need to know? Obviously, some knowledge is required. And that leads Kant to discuss the uses of theology in the development of our moral life. For the development of a life of virtue, we've said this, we need to view all moral duties as if they were divine commands. All right, that said, what else do we need? For the basic religious response, and those responses he identifies as hope, fear, love of God, and for engaging in ecclesial services, we obviously need a church. That's something that we saw in our very first analysis of religion, that you need a body to perpetuate some truths about God, and that body is a teaching institution of some sort. Morality must lead to religious community. 
It's based on respect for moral law, reverence to God. Our direct response to God is made through religious attitudes. But these are based on something that comes to us. Those basic attitudes, again, Kant respects a tradition here, reverence, love, respectful fear. We've heard that before. The act of reverence arises from the correlation in man between his law-giving moral reason and his view of God as the holy source of those laws. We revere the source of the laws we know or laws to be obeyed. Similarly, religious love is sustained by a dynamism coming from our desire for happiness and our moral notion of God as good. Our respectful fear arises from the interaction between conscience and the attribution of incorruptible justice to God. I mean, we fear God as a just judge. Our respectful fear is something that can't, can't avoid acknowledging. Again, moral reasoning as legislative leads to reverence. Our basic inclination to happiness leads to love. Our conscience leads us to fear. God is seen then on Kant's premises as a holy lawgiver, a good provider of happiness, and a just judge. Believers not only give a religious interpretation to moral duties, but also engage themselves in specifically religious practices and institutions. Kant's aim is not to suppress the movement beyond the minimum, but he does wish to assure some sort of philosophical control over further elaborations. Now Kant is talking mainly about Christianity, but he was aware of a plurality of religions, certainly. He read the best scholarly studies in comparative religion made in the 17th and 18th centuries. He was aware of the Rig Veda, the Zendavista, the Quran, but he concentrates on Christianity, and we'll see this graphically. The view of man and God provided by the Bible is readily susceptible to a moral and religious interpretation. There is a certain consistent wholeness about the Bible. Some of Kant's contemporaries, of course, did not find it easy to accommodate themselves to biblical religion. Holbach, certainly. Voltaire, who was another. But Kant feels that Holbach and Voltaire are not doing justice to religion either as a natural or as a revealed commitment. While rejecting Holbach and Voltaire, Holbach doesn't believe at all, Voltaire is willing to reduce it all to kind of a moral message. Kant's not willing to identify, he rejects both Voltaire and Holbach, but he's not willing to identify with those who make the Bible the primary norm of reasonableness. He says all three approaches are a threat against the human approach that he's attempting to develop. So he rejects atheism, he rejects a kind of ethical outlook on religion, and he rejects what might be called a fundamentalist approach. If we must 
first know that an action is a divine command before we can be sure about its religious and moral worth, we cut off the native roots of moral and religious conviction. Experience would cease to be the foundational act. In that case, any harmony between biblical religion and philosophical reflection would be rendered insignificant. Philosophy should move parallel. Theologians shouldn't panic and attempt to place revelational religion entirely beyond the scope of rational reflection. Can't oppose irrationalism in religion. The mature person called upon to make a religious response must be able to discern a need in the human condition or divine aid in the form of historical revelation. We need revelation. He must be able to compare the message the Bible provides with his innermost moral ideal of God. Hence, revelation must present itself as a realization of man's religious reflections and moral aspirations. Revelation proposed solely by appeal to divine power and authority or to some already constituted set of civil and ecclesiastical ordinances would not manifest to us the morally good and just God. It would leave out love. Kant calls his own position pure or non-reductive rationalism. Christian revelation speaks a message to man in his practical reason. It seeks to aid mankind in realizing its common moral good in the social order. The distinction between natural and revealed religion consequently is misleading. Whenever our religious assent and practices are involved, both faith and reason are present in some sense. Thus, the act of belief is essential to the assent given in the purely moral form of religion. But on the other hand, practical reason is fully engaged in the assent given to Christian revelation in its moral significance. Kant distinguishes between three meanings of revealed religion. These are meanings not usually distinguished. He talks about statutory religion. This is ecclesiastical faith determined by creed and practice of a church. And Kant is in Germany where there is an established religion. Lutheranism, a Lutheran form of Protestantism is the established religion established religion in that sense, established by a civil ordinance, that's one type of religion. He distinguishes that from supernatural religion, and he defines that as doctrine and practice which are supernatural in their origin. They contain truth, they provide a special aid for mankind, and then instrumental religion which is a vehicle or a concrete instrument for the realization of moral theism under human conditions. The philosophy of religion treats revelation from the instrumental standpoint only. There is bound to be a difference between religion treated from the instrumental perspective and religion treated from the supernatural perspective of a theology of revelation. 
Revealed religion may contain something which no philosophy at all can ever grasp with insight. A philosophy of religion developed within the human condition recognizes this. It refrains from denying the supernatural. The philosopher should be at, at least in principle open. It may even recognize the need for God's supernatural initiative at the historical moment of introducing mankind to the meanings gathered together in revelational religion, although thereafter a philosophical analysis and grounding can be made. In the practical order, especially in confrontation with evil, the religious man is strongly aware of the need for some supernatural help. A something more is required for the integrity and perfection of human nature. What Kant is seeing is that man can't go it alone, that he needs help, as it were, both in the order of knowledge and in the moral order apart from himself. The supernatural aspect of revelation is entirely beyond the range of philosophical investigation. It remains totally unassimilable to practical reason and underivable from the moral imperative. It's a mystery which cannot be denied, but also one which cannot be communicated to us even by God in the form of speculative truth or philosophically known determined actuality. The supernatural and instrumental conceptions of religion cannot be synthesized. The revelational mode of religion can be applied religion, an instrument for giving practical human support to our minimal religious belief. And how does this come about? Kant is talking about what's the function of revelation now? It's considerations of morality that lead us to affirm God is a lawgiver. We have put aside the possibility that we can know God independently of revelation and the moral approach. The revelational mode, because it uses concrete imagery and symbols, that is the Bible, is helpful. And because it's concerned with the temporal and the historical, that is, with God's presence in history, it also provides insights unavailable from any other source. And because it creates a community among men, a practical union, that is, through churches, through religious traditions, again, it's useful. In Kant's epistemology, concrete schemata, products of imagination, achieve a kind of adaptation with general categories of understanding. We need symbols, we need images to deal with these transcendent truths, so to speak. So scripture is required for Kant, even when he considers religion to be primarily a moral force and is generated out of man's need to recognize something in order to give a moral life, something beyond temporal existence, in order to give life a meaning. Religion cannot help but realize itself in a social manner. It needs the visible church, the symbols which tradition and ecclesiastical structures can provide. So Kant retains a respect for Christianity 
even while providing an alternative explanation of the need of religion. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.